hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast, uh, the next in our series as we discuss Deuteronomy. I'm very pleased that you've decided to join us. My name's Cameron. G'day, I'm Ken. I happen also to be in the very same room as Cameron recording the podcast. And I'm Luke, and uh, the Australian government would uh, punish me most severely if I was in the same room as Ken and Cam at the moment. Well, not just the Australian government, but the Tasmanian one as well, Luke. Yeah. Uh, even more fearful. Well, <laughs> Lachlan is not with us. He is uh, on a separate Zoom call at the moment, I think, recording a lecture for some students, so he won't be able to join us. Um, Luke, your comment about being punished most severely is uh, a little topical because it actually... Um, the, the, the level of government intervention has become a topic of discussion for the um, Adventist Church in Tasmania. Uh, last Sabbath was a very interesting day. It was it was a day of prayer and fasting and fasting. Uh, not Luke for those affected by COVID generally, but specifically for those. What was the word in Ken? Especially praying for the growing impact compulsory vaccination is having on the employment of many of our members and the progress of God's work. Hmm, that is an interesting one. I just wonder what the message that's being given by that sort of call is. I mean, of course, one should always participate in prayer and fasting about all things, uh, about particularly when we have to make decisions and have to deal with the consequences of our decisions. But uh, I'm wondering, you know, anyway, I've just had some real, I was significantly disquieted by the implications in the message. It is of interest to me uh, that uh, personal liberties and and the right to choose is a theme that seems to be taken up by religious groups. Uh, It doesn't seem to me hugely compatible, that emphasis. I mean, obviously, God gave us powers of choice, but emphasising our our, um, right to choose and being politically active to that effect um, uh, it makes me a little uncomfortable in light of Christ's commandments to be the servant of all, um, to take up our cross and follow him. And and certainly the precedent set by the Christian church in previous pandemics and epidemics I mean, is, is one of self-sacrifice, where people are willingly, not, not not just to lose their jobs, but willing to stay behind in a... In a plague-ridden town to tend for the sick when there is a greater than 50% chance of them dying. Yes, it's one of the things that I think is a little disturbing amongst many others, but is the emphasis on uh, personal freedom. The fact of personal freedom cannot be doubted. Uh, Paul assumes it. Uh, But what he specifically says is that in the exercise of your freedom, uh, do not be a stumbling block to others. Uh, so there is a responsible way to exercise that freedom, uh, and that's what we're called to. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, the mistake of calling it compulsory vaccination when it's not, um, the uh, and, and the implicit message uh, that we ought not be affected by... Uh, or we not we ought not be regulated in our choices is disturbing and what's also disturbing is that the implication is that we 
should be free to exercise that without consideration for the greater social good. I mean, there have been cases, haven't they, in history, Ken, where people have objected to things based on conscience, so uh, pacifists Mm -hmm. during times of war. Mm -hmm. And uh, the pacifists who objected to compulsory military service willingly and voluntarily served prison sentences. Yes. Look, that's right. Of course, to bring in the compulsory C.S. Lewis quote, um, he wrote an essay called Why I Am Not a Pacifist. Uh, Mm. um, And, uh, uh, in fact, it's one of the uh, 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 great uh, essays on epistemology uh, and uh, the way that we accept knowledge and uh, regulation uh, from authority and the good reasons for doing so. Well, this touches on two of my personal bugbears, one of which is to hear people, and not you, I hasten to clarify before I make this statement, one of which is to listen to people talk on a topic in which their first sentence makes it very clear that they understand nothing of the topic. For example, freedoms, my freedoms are being infringed. Are they really? Do you actually know what your freedoms are? Um, have you not noticed that society compels you to do certain things a certain way and you're not allowed to do other things previously? Did you think you lived in perfect individual selfish freedom until now? Um, And if you really did, then all that means is society has not yet forced you to do or not do something that you didn't want to do or not do anyway. But it didn't mean that just because that hadn't happened to you personally that society did not have rules. All freedoms in an organized society are a balance between the individual and the group. All of them, all the time. We have have not moved, we have moved definitely from a situation of more individual freedoms to less at the moment, one hopes temporarily, for collective benefit and in response to a crisis. That is definitely true, but it is absolutely an oversimplification to the point of falsehood, to say that we had freedom before and now we don't have freedom. That's, that's a false dichotomy. And, 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 and that's my second bugbear, which is imprecise language. So you, you take a situation where the slider of personal freedoms has been moved this way a bit, and you say a binary switch from freedom to prison has been flicked. Well, that's not true. That's just that's factually false. It's incorrect because you have oversimplified. The imprecision of language is responsible for so much misery and argument and pointless suffering and backwards and forwardsing in the world today that it boggles my mind that more people don't seem to care about it. A classic example, since we're talking about this recent pandemic, is when it was announced that the Australian Defence Force personnel would be assisting police basically door knocking and chatting with people in in Sydney, for example, it was it was widely shouted in some areas, including in things that purported to be media, and I won't make any statement about whether or not they actually are media, that Sydney was under martial law. Really, really. The military commanders have taken over the running of the of, of, of the levers of government in Sydney? Is that what's happened? No, that was not what has happened. If you looked at what was actually happening, unarmed military personnel were teaming up with police 
more or less so they just have more bodies so they could go around and do more things because there was a massive demand on police to be out on the street checking that people who were supposed to be isolating were isolating and were at home when they were supposed to be at home and all the rest of it. It, it was not in any way, it could not be described accurately as martial law. The people calling it martial law clearly had no idea what the phrase martial law actually means. Hmm. Those of us who have, for example, been to Myanmar know what martial law is hmm. and are very annoyed when you morons use that word inaccurately. <laughs> there's, there's another factor which is hugely significant, and it's this. Locke's not here, so we can talk about aeroplanes at our leisure. Uh, we have 100% pilot representation. But there's a lot of laws and restrictions on freedoms. If I'm approaching an airport, I just can't waltz up to that airport at any altitude and any height that I want. I, there are mandated radio calls. There are set points at which I can join a circuit. I have to do something called a circuit. Uh, do those laws limit my freedoms? The truth is that if there was huge rates of fatality and collisions and people would die and uh, society would not stand for it, they would say this is this is an unsafe practice, putting people at risk. Well, we will have to limit the scope of pilots to do what they want. It's it's the the strict procedures <coughs> um, limit freedom in in one sense, but they provide a huge amount of freedom in another sense. Uh, the freedom, for instance, to be reasonably confident when I am joining a circuit uh, that I will not have a collision. And so, when you say the government is at present um, taking away individual freedoms. Uh, <clears throat> there's a pandemic on. So let's compare. If there was no um, requirement to vaccinate, if there was no um, uh, requirement to self-isolate, would we genuinely have more freedom than we do under lockdown? Well, and and for the people who are in intensive care wards, and the, the, freedom, the freedom to be reasonably confident that your loved ones will still be here in six months' time, that's... Uh, I, I don't think there has been a, a net loss of freedom when compared to the realistic alternatives. Yes. Anyway, I think it's an issue that needs to be addressed. I, uh, it seems to me that, as a whole, our church has been somewhat irresponsibly uh, muted in its uh, response to uh, vaccination. Uh, and I think it really should be making an unequivocal statement in support of full vaccination as soon as possible by everybody, rather than pandering to the uh, paranoid apocalyptic views uh, of some on the fringe. Well, it's, I mean, it's also ironic, isn't it, Ken, because we have a health message. And one of the things we're so proud of is our health, health message. And more specifically, we, we are very quick to point out that the uh, health guidance given in the Old Testament in particular was far ahead of its time. Things like um, vegetarianism, uh, things like self-isolation of people who are diseased, except the impositions placed on, on the leprous far exceeds anything that we've imposed on, on people with COVID, even though... 
leprosy is much less contagious. Yes, it may have been dealing with other contagious conditions as well, but mm, um, true. Uh, but n- nonetheless, uh, the point uh, remains, and it's interesting that, in fact, Jesus himself endorsed that very system when he healed the ten lepers because it was that system that required you to go and present yourself to the priest. And uh, uh, that was what he told those that he had healed to do. Of course, he did heal them. uh, And as a Christian organisation promoting the Christian ethic of putting the interests of others first, uh, the very minimal risk to the individual being vaccinated, it seems to me, uh, requires a Christian response to be um, uh, putting the interests of others first, um, I will do it. Well, there's a passage in Deuteronomy, actually, that, that dwells on some of these themes, the themes of of uh, how excellent God's law is. And, I mean, we're going to be dealing with a lot of sort of law laws as we go through Deuteronomy, and uh, we won't be talking today about the laws that require ill people to be separated from the camp. But um, We've already <coughs> done that. We've already done that. So uh, there is a passage, though, that I do want to look at, uh, which is in Deuteronomy 4 and verses 5 to 8. Well, I'm happy to read it. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. I'm just going to pause there, because last week we came over here in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1, and we were looking at uh, the uh, appointment of the judges. And uh, at the very end of that appointment, uh, in his charge to the judges, he said, and at that time I told you everything you were to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, that's a summary uh, here we have, and we can find it again, uh, Moses saying, well, and this is what I told you. Mm. Um, uh, that's an interpolation, it might be obvious. Um, mm. Not even a paraphrase. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? We don't usually think of God's law as having evangelistic potential. But that's that's largely because we don't live under, under the rule of tyrants. And um, for people under, under tyrannical rule... Um, a, a very structured, fair, just system of laws would have been extremely appealing. I was going to say, it's very much in keeping with some of the things we've discussed about the purpose of the Israelites. Um, yeah. God's, God's purpose of them, which was not to be, not to put themselves above other people, but to, to serve as, as an example um, of, of how things could be better. And in, in particular, their their treatment, you know, what the laws say their treatment of foreigners should be and those living among them. Um, their, their, the laws around the ownership of land mm. that is essentially a, a sort of mechanism to, to prevent um, the, the, um, the wealth gap that is kind of a modern plague 
uh, on economies. It causes all sorts of issues, um, social and economic, um, in every economy where it manifests uh, to, to a large degree. Um, and they had a mechanism for dealing with it thousands of years ago. And I think that's fairly unique, at least... I'm fairly into ancient history and not just the traditional, at least traditional for us, Western, but also um, ancient Chinese history I've studied a fair bit of. I know of no kingdom, political entity, race, tribe, group that had those same land ownership laws as the Israelites, where everything reverted after 49 years, or was it 49 years, I think? Everything reverted back to the original owners and sort of reset in terms of land ownership. I know I, I do not know of any other civilization on the planet that practiced that. Mm. It's very unique. The thought occurred to to me that um, that this law that it was meant to be found to be so um, attractive is probably going to be attractive to the common people. I can't imagine I can't imagine the neighboring kings and wealthy elite looking across at these laws and saying, ah, I like the look of that. Um, Look at all these laws that limit our capacity to get richer and richer and richer, and look at these laws that insist that everyone should get an equal hearing when they come before the judge, uh, which we talked about last week. I I, I don't imagine the rich and the powerful being particularly swayed by, by God's law as revealed in the Pentateuch. But I can imagine the average person living in a society with huge inequities, looking at the Israelites and saying, yeah, that, that's just a better way of doing things. Mm. Hmm. Um, are we going to continue reading Deuteronomy 4? Uh, I think we should. Um, there's a note here in Ken's Bible that I think deserves comment, but I've realised that I thought it came after the bit we just read, but it actually comes before. Um, so my apologies to our listeners for breaking the, the chronology of this, but... Um, there's a statement in right at the start of the chapter that says, uh, you must neither add anything to what I command you, nor take away anything from it. And Ken's Bible that I've borrowed here has a little footnote, and I think it's quite interesting. Uh, it says, the vast bulk of Deuteronomy records God's will for his people in the form of the law. Before the law is given, Moses warns Israel not to add or take away from the law. The latter we do simply by disobeying the law while the former is a more subtle problem because we can do it with the best intentions. We don't want to offend God by having premarital sex, so we prohibit dancing. We don't want to transgress by getting drunk, so we ban drinking. We don't want to take God's name in vain, so we never speak God's name. Such fencing of the law with legalism is as offensive to God as breaking it. That's a challenging statement, isn't it? Of course... Uh, I like that. I, I'm not sure that I've said it on this podcast before, but one of the um, uh, sayings that I recently discovered, or one of the principles that I recently discovered, was that um, uh, the principal reason church people are against sex is because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's such an Adventist. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very, it has a very good point. In seeking to protect, it's it's possible to be too legalistic. Yeah. And when I look at a lot of a lot of the Adventist culture that I grew up in, I think a lot of what was taught to us as children fell into that category. It it, it didn't actually 
well, at least in my case, it, it didn't actually help really to protect me from anything. Um, it did certainly create certain impressions about certain cultural practices that have lasted a very long time and, and aren't particularly accurate. But it was not, it was not an effective way uh, of educating, I think. And it was, it was done with very good intentions, absolutely. Mm. But I, I spent a lot of my youth um, agonizing over things I really didn't need to agonize over as a result. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though. I was reading a, a book by Philip Yancey, who's an author we need to quote more on this podcast. And he, it was, it was in a book he wrote called I Was Just Wondering. And it's not actually a book. It's just a compilation of editorials that he's written and small articles that he's written. But one of them was um, <clears throat> on his very fundamentalist upbringing. And he was asked to do a survey on um, a survey that was to be filled out by recovering fundamentalists. And he felt himself to be very qualified for this. Have you got it, Ken? No, I, I'm not sure. I've got a few of them here. Uh, which book was it? Um, I was just wondering. There you are. Let me <laughs> let me find the. We should do this with you around at Ken's place more often. Yeah, Ken's got an excellent <laughs> library. Handy. Page one hundred and six. The essay is called uh, "Growing Up Fundamentalist." Uh, when a friend asked me to fill out a survey designed for adult children of fundamentalism, I felt appropriately qualified as a research subject. First came a series of statements to rate. I was asked to mark each by whether I agreed, strongly agreed, disagreed, strongly disagreed, or didn't know. Here are some sample statements. I have trouble getting close to other people. God is capricious. My body is ugly. The world is a bad place. I have difficulty having fun. Feelings are bad. I'm quick to judge others. I tend to think in either black or white, right or wrong. Sex is bad. I'm afraid that I'm going to hell. I dutifully checked off my responses to these and other statements, no, I'm not telling, and then proceeded to the open-ended portion of the survey. It was there that I ran into some surprises. Has guilt been an issue for you? What type of things do you feel guilty about? Do you consider yourself a judgmental person? Yes, he says, guilt has been an issue for me, and he um, expands a little bit. And then I'll get over to the conclusion. Uh, the survey on fundamentalism, after proceeding in like manner for five pages, concluded by asking me to summarise the positive effects in my life of having grown up in fundamentalism, and then the negative. For positive effects, I listed these. Bible literacy, a recognition of the seriousness of individual choices and behaviour. God awareness. For negative effects, I listed these. Cultural illiteracy, residual judgmentalism, social isolation, and limited life experiences. It didn't take me long for me to determine which of the two lists has proved more important in forming who I am today. In fact, a funny thing happened as I filled out the survey. I'd expected the exercise would, by prompting me to relive pain, painful moments, bring to the surface unresolved anger and resentment. But when I reached the end, I was struck mainly with a sense of gratitude for my heritage. Why was this man born blind, Jesus' disciples asked. He gave an answer at once incomplete and profoundly satisfying. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Uh, that's a good lesson for all of us with handicaps, even the handicap of fundamentalism. Now, of course, this is the voice of someone who grew up in a very fundamentalist church and stayed a Christian. So to get a balanced perspective, you'd have to talk to someone who grew up in a very legalistic environment and, and left the church. Mm. Yes, and there are many people who grow up in legalistic environments who leave the church. Mm. 
it's strongly correlated. Yeah. Mind you, I mean, there's attrition from churches like the Pentecostal churches too. Well, some of the Pentecostal... There is. Well, some of the Pentecostal churches are very legalistic. Okay. Yes, yeah, you you got you got to keep that in mind. Legalistic does not mean conservative. <laughs> no, and do you know they may often go together, but they are two completely different things. I, some of the people I know who are most lifestyle conservative, and conservative in their own choices, are the most theologically liberal. And yes. a lot of the people I know Quite. who are very yes. theologically conservative are very liberal on lifestyle issues. Yeah, and. I, I think it is a really, really important point. The legalistic approach is not is is neither conservative nor liberal. It's not left or right. It's not it, it's not fascist or communist. Whatever, whatever uh, false yeah. <laughs> oversimplification you want to you want to try and use to describe reality, um, legalism is can. Can can sprout up in any garden and make a nuisance of itself. Uh, legalism can turn up in in interesting ways too, and and sort of the strict adherence to liturgies and laws without seeing deeper meaning. I, I have a good friend, uh, Adrian Jackson, who worked for many years at um, a Pentecostal church, doing media production work, and he shared an opinion with me. I can't remember whether it was the church he'd worked at or at another church that he'd been to. Uh, where they insisted, they absolutely insisted that uh, things not be planned ahead of time because they didn't want to become a strict liturgical, dry, rules-based sort of worship ceremony. They wanted it to be free and they wanted it to be free for the spirit to move. And Adrian's comment was, uh, is the spirit incapable of moving during the planning process? Uh, is it is it only in the execution phase that the spirit can can be active? And his other comment, I actually I can't remember if this was his comment or whether it was um, something that I thought afterwards, was that uh, uh, saying adamantly that we must not have a liturgy is in its own way a sort of liturgy. Yes, it's it's certainly a very prescriptive rule about how worship services must be planned. <laughs> I was going to say your. Uh... The, the the rule that I have about your le- your definition of legalism is that uh, that must be the rule. Yeah. There's another passage in chapter four, Ken, which links to a passage that you were talking about before we started recording. So uh, we've talked about the Ten Commandments. We may not have exhausted the topic, but we've certainly tried. Well, at least tried to talk about it. So we're going to skip chapter five, even though the lesson talks about that a bit in chapter four it says this in verse 25 when you have had children and children's children and become complacent in the land if you act corruptly by making an idol in the form of anything thus doing what's evil in the sight of the lord your god and provoking him to anger i call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are crossing the jordan to occupy you will not live long on it but will be utterly destroyed the lord will scatter you among the peoples only a few of you will be left among the nations where the Lord will lead you. And there you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. Isn't that an interesting finish? To, mm. And to see that uh, seek and you will find was what Jesus said. 
Mm. What I what I find really interesting about this is it it does it does say in twenty five, for example, if it says if you become corrupt, etc., etc. But then you go down to thirty. It says when you when, not if. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your ancestors, which he confirmed to them by oath. Yeah. Moses had lived with these people for a while. I think he had a pretty good idea about whether they were going to keep keep the law. Well, but he also had a very good idea about whether or not God would keep the covenant. Yeah. He's, 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 there's no no doubt whatsoever. When your descendants inevitably do the wrong thing and get conquered and scattered, and when they repent and try to return to me, God, God will be there. It's interesting. There's a there's an almost parallel passage in Deuteronomy four. The um, uh, the focus is, if you like, on uh, remembering religious observance, if I can call it that. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, uh, there is another uh, exhortation to remember God, not to forget God. Uh, 8 and verse 6, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing into your good land, uh, and a land that's bountiful and plentiful, in which you will lack nothing. Um, and then he says this, when you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, that sounds a little bit like the Western society. Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And he goes on and then says this in chapter 19, if you forever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, as he says in Deuteronomy 4, will inevitably happen. Um, uh, I testify against you that you will surely be destroyed. Here's the interesting thing. Like the nations, the Lord destroyed before you so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? Either, often we assume that uh, God cleared out the land that the Israelites were going to to make room for them. But what this passage actually suggests is uh, something quite different, uh, that they were dealt with because of their disobedience to God. And one wonders, well, what would things have been like if they had been obedient. There are all sorts of assumptions in there, including assumptions that God made uh, his requirements known to them uh, and communicated with people other than the Israelites. Um, but uh, I just thought that was an interesting passage. Maybe maybe didn't need to have communicated everything in huge levels of specificity. Mm. Maybe um, the truth which they knew they weren't following. Mm. So they, they weren't adhering to what they knew to be right. Yes, of course that can be true of all of us. Made me think of the verse we studied in Proverbs, Ken, the, the, the statement that material prosperity. Oh, this is another thing. Back to that statement about the COVID thing. There's an assumption that this pandemic will adversely affect the spiritual health of the church and the church's message. But I, I think the biblical precedent for 
good times adversely affecting the spiritual health of church members and the and the church as a whole is much stronger. I think I think we should, <clears throat> if we're concerned for our spiritual well being, and this is a little tongue in cheek because I know there's a lot of people who are hurting from the pandemic. So I don't I don't want to appear to be treating a, a serious topic lightly. But perhaps we ought to be thanking God for the trouble we have. I, I'm worried about that now that I've said it, but uh, <clears throat> there's a sense in which I think there's some truth in that. And certainly material prosperity seems to be uh, the trigger point that Moses identifies uh, that precedes the disobedience. And I was remembering the verse we read in Proverbs 30, which was one of my favourite passages that we did when we studied Proverbs. That was the extended passage that were the words of Agar, son of Jacka. He starts very humble. He says, who am I? I'm hardly even a man. I, I don't know anything. And then he later on he says, uh, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that I need, or I shall be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or I shall be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Mm. There's a strong parallel, isn't there? Mm. Well, I sense that our discussion's waning. <laughs> It is waning a bit, Ken. I'm waning. I've spent a lot of time... I'm trying to build a bench, Luke. A yeah, bench. our listeners don't need to know about this, but I've started now, so it's too late. I'm trying to build a workbench in my new shed, and the biggest problem I have is that I do not have a workbench on which to build my bench. Oh. And I, I've spent the day... It's going to be a very big, heavy bench uh, with a big, thick, three-inch thick tassie oak top, and I've been building this at ground level. Lumping around bits of wood, and I'm very sore. <laughs> but I ought to be pleased for my discomfort, Ken, because were I comfortable, well off and comfortable, I might be more inclined to disobedience. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. Uh, my inclination to disobedience is strong enough without any additional comfort. It does suggest, though, doesn't it, that we don't really know what is in our best interests. Mm. Oh, that's, I think, the conclusion you have to come to as a Christian. Or just somebody who's made enough mistakes. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and has enough introspection to admit it to themselves. Um no, we really don't know what's in our best interests, and our efforts to act in our own best interests often backfire. Um, Actually, that's a very insightful phrase, Luke. Um, our efforts to act in our own self-interest often backfire. I think that one of the things that the um, laws like the commandments, which we skipped over in Deuteronomy 5, and the other laws that we'll be studying as we go through Deuteronomy, one of the one of the points that it makes is uh, that it is not your in your best interest to try and act in your own best interest. That's very good. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, that is excellent. That I think I think that's that's a, a very fundamental sort of Christian concept, and I know this is something which Lewis has written about very eloquently and lots of others, but. Um, I remember somewhere in Lewis, here we go, here's our half-remembered quote section. <laughs> we couldn't finish without having, having one of these. He talks about first things and second things. And first things are the things that are really, really important um, that you have to put first. And second things are the things that, that 
um, they tend to be managed if you get the first things yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you make the mistake of putting the second things first, you get neither the first or the second yes. things. Um, I'll find that quote for next week. But... It, yeah. His, his sort of example I remember, because it touched on my interest about ancient history, um, was talking about civilizations and how the, the perpetuation of a civilization is a second thing. If a civilization has as its first and number one priority simply to continue existing, if it's not concerned with any higher purpose like justice or order or law or right um, or even something like power and wealth, um, if it's continued, if it's concerned purely with survival, it will definitely not survive. And he gives the example of sort of the late Roman Empire. Mm. As, as an entity that was almost entirely obsessed with its own continued existence and which subsequently, as a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy, uh, was its own worst enemy so many times that it eventually ceased to exist. I found the quote, Luke, but I, I, I don't have the reference from which book it's from. But I might read some of this and this will be the end of this episode. There are three types of people. The first class is those who live simply for their own sake and pleasure, regarding man and nature as so much raw material to be cut up into whatever shape may serve them. In the second class are those who acknowledge some other claim upon them, the will of God, the categorical imperative, the good of society, and honestly try to pursue their own interests no further than this claim will allow. They try to surrender to the higher claim as much as it demands, like men paying a tax, but hope, like other taxpayers, that what is left over will be enough for them to live on. Their life is divided like a soldier's or a schoolboy's life into time on parade and off parade, in school and out of school. But the third class is of those who can say, like St Paul, that for them to live is Christ. These people have got rid of the tiresome business of adjusting the rival claims of self and God by the simple expedient of rejecting the claims of self altogether. The old egoistic will has been turned around, reconditioned, made into a new thing. The will of Christ no longer limits theirs, it is theirs. All their time, in belonging to him, belongs also to them, for they are his. Well, that's a wonderful spot to finish. Yeah. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining our discussion. It's been a little bit shorter, and episodes over the next few weeks will be, as I'm tackling the the task of wrapping up my Year 11 and 12 classes at school, and Lachlan's doing a lot of lecturing. So uh, that's how it's going to be. Uh, as always, we would be interested to hear any thoughts you have. You can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And uh, we hope you join us for next week's discussion.